beautiful, beautiful. Good morning, church, and happy Resurrection Sunday. Happy Easter. We were just notified that uh, Jeannie and Roger Holti's son-in-law, Tim, is an ER. And I just wanted to take a moment to pray for him first before I get started on my prayer. Dearest Heavenly Father, we just come to you in the mighty name of Jesus, no other name we know in heaven and earth to come and pray. We just bring you Tim, uh, Jeannie and Roger's son-in-law. He's been in the ER since 4 a.m., Father God. You are the great physician, Lord. Please touch him as only you can, Lord. Give the doctors, the nurses, wisdom and knowledge on how to treat him. You are the great physician. Touch his body from the top of his head to the bottom of his toes. Fill him with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and may he recover excellently. And we thank you in advance. Amen. I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood for me. One day when I was lost, he died upon the cross. And I know it was the blood for me. Hallelujah. When, when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No longer were animal sacrifices needed. Jesus' death, the shedding of his own precious blood, was the ultimate atonement for your sin and my sin. What great love. God gave his only begotten son. Jesus willingly left heaven in all of his glory to come down and take on human form for you and me to share in every experience we will ever experience. Now there is a way for all people for all time, to come through the Father, through Jesus, his Son. Thank you, Jesus, that you provided a way, the only way for us to be saved from our sins. Through your life, your death, and resurrection, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What a day to accept Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior if you do not know him. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Revelations 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and be with him. The handle is on the inside. We must open the door ourselves to invite Jesus into our heart. Won't you invite Jesus to come into your heart today if you don't know him? Jesus offers us the free gift of eternal life through Christ. Lord, 
I pray for Pastor Tim this morning as he prepares to bring us the message. May it come with all the power of the resurrection and all the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill this sanctuary with your Holy Spirit. Bring the center to repentance, Lord. Bring the saint closer to you. Help us to welcome your word as the living word of God and allow it to work in us so that we may take it home with us, so that we may be the church outside of these walls. Our Savior has risen. Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. For I know that my Redeemer lives. To you, God, be all the glory and honor on this Resurrection Sunday forever. In the powerful and mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 He is risen. Let's do that again. He is risen. Amen. You know, last year I recorded a, an Easter sermon from home late at night. And we all participated in Easter worship from home. And so we say it all the time, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. But this Easter, it's especially good to be in the house of the Lord, worshiping with you all. So thank you. Um, there's, a, there's a lot going on in this service. We have a lot to celebrate, a, a lot to do together. Um, Eden told me last night we were getting the kids ready for bed. And, uh, and we said, well, it's a big day for everybody tomorrow. And Eden, without missing a beat, looks straight at me and says, yeah, especially for me. I'm like, girl, you get five minutes tomorrow. I got, I got 40 minutes. But, um, you know, the beauty of the dance uh, just overshadows a, a lot of what else we will do. But we will go to the Word here in a minute. But before we do, um, as we celebrate the victory that Christ has, has, has achieved for us over the cross. We're keeping the kids in here all together today, okay? So kids, uh, if there is nursery care upstairs, but the kids' classes are not happening today. There are coloring things out there. And kids, I will give you a prize if you send me. Have your parent take a picture of your picture, and I'm going to pick one and give you a prize. So there's some motivation for you guys. Get some artwork going here. Um, but before we jump into the Word together, we want to present to you a, a missions project that we have, an opportunity we have as a church. And it's going to be a little different because we're going to play a news clip to introduce it.
We showed, that to you. we showed that to you just to start a conversation that we're having this morning. Tom, come on up. Tom is the head of our missions committee, and we're going to present to you our opportunity that we have when humanitarian aid is overstretched by a global crisis, causing two million people to be dis- displaced. Uh, we have a unique opportunity as a church to come in with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to help. So before Tom starts, I'm going to let you know if you're watching at home, we're going to put some pictures up on the screen. Those of you in this room will see the pictures of some of our partners in West Africa that we're going to be working with, but those of you at home will not because we're not going to broadcast these pictures online. Okay, so Tom, tell us about the opportunity we have. Okay, well, I want to ask a question first. How many of you all have heard of what's going on in West Africa right now? Before watching the video. Before watching the video. Okay. Well, that's not your fault, and it's only a very few. To find a news clip to show you what's going on, American news has zero on this. We had to go to a foreign news service to find something to illustrate it. And so this is kind of a silent, this is a, a silent crisis that's going on. Uh, our, uh, you know, our, we have our partners there, and y'all know who they are, are involved in doing humanitarian relief. Normally, by this time, we would have a missions conference and present our missions project. However, because of the unusual circumstances of the past year, uh, our missions conference is, is tentatively scheduled for sometime in September. But because of the crisis, we felt it was important to present a project that we would like to participate in. And that is to raise, we, our goal is to raise $10,000 for humanitarian relief. And just to... Let's start the pictures. And so you, you will see uh, the, the relief consists mostly of life-sustaining grain. You know, there, they don't have a Providence Ministries, churches down the road, uh, other types of safety nets. This is the safety net, depending on people from outside the country. And so our partners are in in West Africa are, are buying grain and then distributing it to people. $40 can buy uh, more than one sack of grain, which a sack of grain will feed a family of four for over a month. Not great, not uh, great tasting nutrition, but it's enough to sustain you. Uh, and so with the terrorism displacing people, they can't plant crops the way that they normally do. They're not at home because of the, because of the terrorist uh, uh, attacks on their villages. So they depend on things like relief and what our partners are doing in, in, uh, in, in sharing uh, life-sustaining grain. But not only are they sharing grain to, um, to sustain life, but that also gives them the opportunity to speak the love of Christ into them as well and the reason why they're doing it. And... Just think of it. If you're there and a bunch of terrorists have just driven you out of your house and your, and your village, and you have people sharing, uh, sharing food, life-sustaining food for you in the name of Jesus Christ, 
what would sound more attractive to you? So this is an outreach that we are privileged to participate in. Um, I would encourage you to, you can, uh, you know, put a check in the box uh, for our 2021 missions project, or you can go online. And uh, I checked it this morning. We have an active, yeah. uh, in, our giving, in our giving page, we have, a, uh, we have an option to give to the humanitarian relief in West Africa. Yeah, and I wanted to add just th this picture that's up on screen right now. These are all young boys that are living on the street within the capital of Ouagadougou. And this is one of our workers that is there telling them about Jesus. And when Tom says that the giving grain opens doors for the witness of Jesus and the witness of the gospel, this is exactly what we're, what we're all about. We have a unique opportunity because we sponsored missionaries there for over 30 years, and they've turned the work over to those that they've trained that are going to continue keeping this going. Go ahead. Yeah, I, well, okay, we'll show the next. Um, there's a little video clip here that you're not going to hear, um, but this clip, go ahead and play it. Um, this clip is one of our partners that is um, sharing the good news of who Jesus is in the midst of a well drilling operation. And this is just an example of what happens. You go into a rural village in the middle of nowhere and you bring clean water and the door swings wide open to talk about Christ. And so when you go to an encampment of displaced people who have been removed from their homes and you bring grain, it swings the door wide open to tell about Jesus. So uh, we're going to keep this going for a few weeks, probably a couple months, give you the opportunity to give. But I will tell you, the need is urgent. So we do want you to give towards this project and we'll keep reminding you of it. But right now, let me pray for those in uh, Burkina and West Africa and for our partners that are working there. Father, we praise you for an incredible opportunity we have to be in partnership with those who are suffering, those who are suffering great physical need on the other end of the world, but those whom, with whom we have a relationship through the connectedness of your body. And so we have an opportunity to send money through, um, through missionary partners for the sake of bringing food to those who are living through a famine caused by a terrorist uh, displacement. And so, God, we pray for your blessing over the money that we give. We pray for your blessing over us as we celebrate the resurrection with great gratitude, recognizing that the empty tomb means that we must respond somehow. And so, Father, we respond with generosity towards the need that you have made us aware of. Move us in your grace. And Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, also, um, we're, we're going to turn to John 20 in a second here, but I have one more person I'm going to bring on stage. Richard, would you join me here? Richard Talley. Um, as much as we like to... Richard, come on up. As much as we like to make you aware of needs as they present themselves, occasionally somebody um, wants to just say thank you. So uh, Richard asked me if he could have the microphone for a little bit, and uh, I said, sure, but only if you come up here on stage. you got to come up here. You go. Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter to you. Um, the main reason I want to come up here and talk to everyone this morning is because on February 3rd, we lost everything. We had a fire in our home. 
And when I say we lost everything, everything. It's just like you're a teenager going out there and you leave mom and dad and you find out how bad it is. But when you get old as I am, you look up to God and says, what do I do now? But I want to say one thing to this whole church and the community. I want to thank you for what you have given us, especially in the way of kindness, love, I don't know what other words, but said compassion. But the biggest thing is, I just want to thank you. I'm not going to stay up here very long because I don't want the pastor to get mad at me. <laughs> but my grandma always said, thing comes in threes. So as you know, through the Bible, he said he comes first. So I'm going to say this to you now. God, thank you for all the help that you have given us. So I read this little, um, I call it a tidbit, says thank you. I hope you bear with me while I read it to you. I wish we could find the perfect way in words to say thank you for all the thoughtfulness and the wonderful ways that everyone pulled together helping us out in every possible way during our time of disaster. Everyone came and brightened our day. You don't know how much you're caring and was such a wonderful part of who you all are. Everyone's kindness and generous spirit has touched our lives to know that everyone blessed us so abundantly, so kind and considerate and thoughtful. We are very grateful for all the special things that everyone has done. Everyone's gentle, loving heart shows through all you have done helping our family that you are a true blessing in this world. Everyone deserves many thanks that we can give. From the words of the Most High whispered in your ear, we are so glad that you took the time and listened, and our family truly thank you. And as always said, everybody says it, and I know you done said it many times, from the bottom of our hearts, my family, excuse me if an old man gets to crying, but thank you very much, church. We love you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Um, I'll also um, make you aware as we prepare for the word that um, within the life of the church every spring we have a leadership changeover as elders and deacons finish terms and start terms. And uh, we do want to remind you, if you're a member, we do need you. If you're, if you're watching at home, you can email Ramona for your ballot. But the ballots are right there. We need those back to the office by noon tomorrow. And I'll also let you know that uh, we do have new elders committing to a term. And they are uh, Steve Fain and... And a first-time elder, uh, Matt Drobnik, is starting a three-year term also. And so we want you to be aware and praying for those men as they uh, lead us um, as, in, as we seek to follow Jesus in biblical faithfulness together. He has been gracious to bring new leadership to us. So let's open to John chapter 20, and we'll focus in on this Easter story. And actually, the first 
the first eyewitness of the resurrection, the first one to actually proclaim what we've all proclaimed today. He is risen. And we know the story of the cross and and the resurrection and the empty tomb, but we're going to this morning lean in to the person of Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. And we're going to, in her story, recognize that her encounter with Jesus teaches us a lot about the way any of us encounter Jesus and are called to respond to Jesus. And the Christian life we know is full of opposition, is full of trial, it is full of hardship, and often even despair. And yet, God is working and moving in the midst of all of that. And so what we'll see from Mary is Mary approached the empty tomb in confusion, in in sorrow, in in despair. She approached the empty tomb in partial blindness, and yet she left completely transformed by the hope that she found there. And so before we go in, let's talk about who Mary was and also a little bit about who Mary wasn't. Our journey for today is following Mary's journey from confusion to confidence, blindness to sight, and from despair to hope. But before we read the passage, we we need to know who Mary is. Uh, Luke 8 tells us that Mary had had seven demons uh, released from her. Uh, That's extreme. That she was under such oppression from demonic influence that there were actually seven demons that needed to be released from Mary Magdalene. This was a dramatic conversion, one that doesn't actually appear in Scripture. We don't, we don't see the day that this miracle is worked on Mary's behalf by Jesus. But we know from Luke 8 and from Matthew that this happened. And she decided to follow Jesus. Luke 8, we know that she was following Jesus somewhat early on within his earthly ministry. From Matthew 20, in fact, we also know that Mary is one of three Marys named in the crucifixion and resurrection narrative. Mary, the mother of Jesus, we, we know her. Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. And then Mary, the wife of Clopas. Three different Marys all highlighted within this narrative. We know where Mary was from. Mary was from Magdala or Migdal, a town on the, sea of, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee in the region of Galilee, uh, not that far from Nazareth and Capernaum, uh, other major towns in Scripture, not major towns in size, they're all tiny, but Migdal, Nazareth, and Capernaum, so much of Jesus' life and ministry happened within this region. That's where Mary was from. That's where she had received demonic oppression, and that's where Jesus released her, and she started to follow him. Now, a little bit more about Mary. Uh, the, the society and culture of our day um, is telling us more things about Mary that the Bible does not tell us. There are great competing stories in the greater society now about who Mary of Magdala actually was and what her relationship with Jesus was. This is when I say that we as Christians face opposition. Here's where. Actually, the ground of the person of Mary Magdalene is one of those places where enemies of of the Scriptures or doubters of Jesus or, or even those that may want to believe in Jesus but reshape the story slightly reshape it around Mary of Magdala. And so you have the, what's called the Gospel of Mary Magdalene that was published, found in the late 1800s, published in the 1900s, that portrays a different view 
of who Mary was, presents her as a, as a great leader within Jesus' people. Then you have the Da Vinci Code takes, takes a little bit of that and, and twists it into, well, you know, Mary and Jesus had this relationship. And then you have, um, even in the last decade, what was called the gospel of Jesus' wife that was uncovered and, and said that Mary and Jesus were married. And, and so we have to actually mention that to contend with that, that uh, the gospel of Mary Magdalene is a later document that is not contemporary with Scripture, and we do not need to put it on the same level of Scripture. And it is actually evidence that early on, there were those within the church and outside of the church that tried to reshape the story around their own desires, around what they wanted to find in the story of Jesus. A temptation that all of Christian history has faced to make Jesus more palatable, more of who we want him to be, and so just carefully shift and twist the story a little bit. The, the, the gospel of Jesus' wife unveiled in 2012. That one, I want you to go home and just Google and read the story. It's fascinating. It is the story of one of the greatest forgeries you have never heard of. An incredible story of, of, a, of a, a, a well-known, well-published, and respected professor that just bought it, just bought the lie, shared it with the world, and was later uncovered for this incredible forgery. In fact, the forgery was so bad that the story actually goes, and there's the book I would actually commend you to read, Veritas by Ariel Sabar. It's fascinating to see what certain people want to reshape the scriptures to mean, reshape the scriptures to say. And that's the story of Mary Magdalene in this book, this gospel of Jesus' wife. Literally, there's a, there's a scene in this story that really did happen in which a room full of scholars are talking about this document and they all agree this is a forgery and it's a bad forgery. And then they talk and talk more and then they say, you know what, it's so bad of a forgery, it's probably not a forgery. No self-respecting forger would have actually made this bad of a forgery. So therefore, it must be real because it's too bad to be a forgery. And that is, I'm not making that up. That is how the story of the gospel of Jesus' wife happened in 2012 and following. So here's who Mary is. Mary is a woman whose background we do not know much about. She came from Migdal. She followed Jesus because Jesus delivered her from seven demons. Radical, transformative, incredible. She was one who was desperate for Jesus because of what Jesus had delivered her from. There is no doubt of her devotion to Jesus. Think of what he had done in redemption for her. So that's who she is. That's really all we know about her until we get to John 20 and we see she is the first, the first witness of the resurrection, which in and of itself gives her a great role within the history of the church. John 20, verse one. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday morning, y'all. That's what we're celebrating today. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. That's John who's writing this narrative. The one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. 
So Peter went with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping it, which is kind of cool that, that John just flexed on Peter and told the whole world for 2,000 years later, I outran Peter to the tomb. Um, both of them were running together. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus, on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Note, note what they believed and what they didn't believe. They believed that there was no body there, but they didn't yet understand the scriptures of the resurrection. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels. That Peter and John didn't see those two angels. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And listen, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The story of Mary's path that day, Mary's journey that day, there's a physical journey taking place, and this girl's running all over the place in the story. But ultimately, we're going to get to the spiritual journey that Jesus takes her on in just a matter of minutes. First, the physical journey. We, we know that um, Matthew gives a slightly different account of the story, and that's because uh, Matthew and John saw things from a different perspective on that day. It, John is tracing, so you read Matthew 28 and John 20, you're going to see the same story told a little bit differently because they're telling it from what they saw and experienced themselves. John's telling stories of interactions between Mary, Peter, and himself. Matthew's telling stories of more of a group because of what he saw as his eyewitness account. But in this John's account, we see Mary goes to the tomb and she's with others when she originally goes to the tomb. But then she sees the tomb empty, she runs runs back, and, and presumably she runs back to the upper room where the disciples are gathered. We know that from Thursday night when Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his followers until the day of Pentecost, they were regularly gathering together in that same upper room. And so we presume that Mary ran back there to find the disciples to tell them, he's gone. 
Peter and John go first. They run there. Mary runs behind them. And look at Peter and John's role in this. Mary sees it first, runs to get them. They run ahead of her. She follows them. And then they see nothing. So they run away and they just leave her there by herself. Mary of Magdala, just sitting there by herself while Peter and John go out to figure out what's going on. And they go back to their homes, they go back to the other disciples, and Mary's sitting there by herself. Now, I want to set the context for this. This had been a shocking death. It had been a shocking death for all involved, for all the followers of Jesus, and especially, especially one who had seven demons released from her. Because what did Mary think Jesus was capable of? I'm going to say just about anything. I'm going to say that Mary thought Jesus was here for some incredible victory, some incredible move that he was bringing in this new kingdom as a conquering king, as the savior of his people. That had to be her expectation. And yet for so many of his followers, it was shock. It was despair and sorrow and tears from Thursday night when he was arrested, Friday throughout the trials and and into the crucifixion. She's eyewitness not just of the empty tomb, but of Jesus hanging on a cross. And she's got to be thinking, any minute now, any minute now, surely he's going to display his power. And then when when the spear pierced his side, Mary of Magdala is sitting there saying, no. No, how could this happen? He can't really be dead. And then, then they take the body down. And then Passover, the, the Sabbath of Passover was that Saturday. And what could they do? Nothing. They couldn't go to the tomb to anoint the body and prepare it for burial. They, they couldn't do anything. They, they stayed. And, and imagine the, the, the sacredness of the Sabbath within the children of Israel had to be so hard and so tainted on that day as they grieved on the Sabbath. And then Sunday morning, as soon as the sun comes up, she's there with a couple of others. And then she runs and runs and runs. So all that to say, this woman is emotionally exhausted. This woman is physically exhausted. And now she's about to have her, her mental capacities blown by all that she sees. So first she moves from confusion to confidence here. And first, the, her first assumption when she sees the empty tomb in verse two, they have taken his body. That's what she tells the others. And then in verse 13, even to the angels, she tells the angels. She sees angels and she suspects foul play. She sees angels and she doesn't go towards the miraculous result. She sees angels and she tells the angels Somebody's stolen the body. And you think, surely the angels would have been a sign that, that God's up to something miraculous here and it's not an issue of a stolen body. But we know she's still dealing with this confusion. But think about the context of all that she is going through, both physically and emotionally. She is exhausted and she is in her despair confused. Have you ever been there? So overwhelmed by, by life, by, by the challenges, the trials, the, the despairs of life, that just finding your way out, finding hope in Christ, finding your way to the truth, finding your way to a solution is so overwhelming because the events just keep pressing in. Hit after hit after hit, challenge after challenge. 
And see, our painful circumstances cause us to the same sort of false conclusions that Mary had at the tomb that day. Three times, three times she said the body must have been stolen. Think about who she said that to. She first said to the disciples, the body was stolen. Then she said to angels, the body was stolen. And then she said to the gardener, who was Jesus, the body must have been moved. She's continuing in these false conclusions until she knows that the gardener is Jesus. And I see in this that uh, in the same way, our painful circumstances lead us to false conclusions. False conclusions about ourselves, about our own worth as children of God, about our own worth as human beings created in the image of God. We, our circumstances lead us to false conclusions about who God is about what he's really up to, what his plan is, uh, how he feels about us, what he's doing on our behalf or what he's doing in us. We make false conclusions about that all the time. Our, Our painful circumstances cause us to come to false conclusions about other people, their motives, their intentions, what they're trying to do to us, for us, whatever. We have false conclusions that we raise about our own abilities, about those that we love, about God himself, all because of the pressing in and the weight of despair, suffering, stress, whatever, from the circumstances that the life throws at us. That's what Mary's dealing with as we're watching her interact with angels, Jesus, and other disciples at the tomb. The weight of circumstance, the weight of the cares and concerns of this life is crushing her and moving her to confusion. And what draws her out? A living Savior. Rabboni. Rabboni is her response to her name. He says Mary. She says teacher. And and she recognizes then and can stand in confidence. I know exactly who this is because she sees her name. It is the living Savior, the living Jesus that moves us from confusion to confidence. It is the empty tomb, the knowledge and confidence in the resurrection that moves us from being completely overwhelmed. How do we figure out how to live a life, how to live a life that honors Christ in this crazy world that he's placed us in? How are we supposed to stand for him? How are we supposed to make good decisions? How are we supposed to honor him and live to glorify him? Look at all this. And in the midst of it all, it's as simple as the empty tomb. The empty tomb that says, in the end, all will be made right. The empty tomb that says the victory has been won. Death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. And therefore, all will be made right. Whether you understand your circumstances now or not, that confusion can fall away into confidence that the living Savior has you. That he loves you. That he died for you. That his sin was poured out for you so that you might stand in confidence in him and not be crushed under the weight of confusion. She also moves from blindness to sight. Uh, Three times, again, she's blind to who Jesus is. She is talking. The first person that sees the resurrected son of God in the flesh doesn't recognize him. We don't know why. 
Maybe God was doing something there that was shielding her vision in some way, trying to, to, to keep her from making an immediate recognition so Jesus could make a point. Maybe her, her eyes were so full of tears. Maybe the stress and the weight of the weekend had pressed down on her so much she couldn't even lift her head to speak to the person directly. Maybe she's just looking at his feet because she can't lift her head out of her sorrow. But for whatever reason, she doesn't even know Jesus is Jesus. And how true is that? for us. That where Jesus is actually working, we're blind to. That where Jesus is actually moving for our good, for our blessing, for our provision, we may actually just be walking in blindness. We may think that Jesus is, that God is out to get us while God is actually moving on our behalf. And how, how does God pull Mary out of this? With his voice. It is the voice of the living Savior that brings Mary from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. And it is not just any voice. It is a personal voice that calls her by name and says, Mary. That's all it took. You know, Jesus asked a question, woman, why are you crying? Woman, who are you seeking? And and Jesus, as the wonderful counselor, is taking the counselor's approach, right? You know, a good counselor doesn't just tell you what to do and go do it. The good counselor asks probing questions to make you think. And the probing question that Jesus is asking her here is pointing out that she loves Jesus dearly, and yet her view of him needs to be expanded. There is no problem with the depth of her love, but there is a problem with the height of her estimation of what Jesus is capable of. Because three times she has not seen resurrection as a possibility. Three times she has gone towards somebody moving the body that she knew was dead. And what she needed to see and what she had to see only through her personal name being stated by Jesus was that this God, this Jesus, this Son of God can do anything. He can make dead things breathe again. He can raise himself up to newness of life after he had been dead for multiple days. There was nothing beyond his power. How many were like Mary, walking with him in the weeks before, hearing him talk about the need for him to suffer, hearing him talk about the sacrifice that needed to be paid, hearing him talk even about his own resurrection, and they just didn't get it. We can look back at the Gospels, and we can see that Jesus predicted this. Jesus predicted that he would die and that he would be raised again on the third day. They didn't see it. They didn't expect it because they were still walking in a measure of blindness. Brothers and sisters, in the coming of the Spirit of God, the blinders fall off. See him. See him for who he really is. In all of his power, in all of his love, in all of his beauty, we can today embrace the Jesus that Mary didn't recognize. He calls out to each one of us by name today. He's calling you by name to say, come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden, come to me. I will give you rest. Take up your cross and follow me. Leave mother, father, brother, sister behind. Follow me. Forsake it all for the sake of me. He calls us by name, because he knows us personally, individually. 
And finally, Mary moves from despair to hope, and it is the presence of Jesus that does it. How many tears must she have cried? If you've ever experienced a shock like this where, where a loved one passed in the most shocking fashion, you weren't ready for it. You weren't prepared. There's nothing you can do to, to prepare for that loss. And then it happens. How do the tears flow? Well, they flow in waves. They hit you really hard one moment and then you go about something. And they hit you really hard again and you can kind of calm down. Then you hit you really hard again. And how many tears must Mary have cried at the loss of not just a great friend, but a great deliverer? One whom she thought, this wasn't just somebody that she loved dearly, but somebody in whom she had incredible confidence in his power. And she wept and wept and wept. I'm convinced throughout the day Thursday, as, as she sees him hanging on a cross on Friday, throughout Friday night and into Saturday, and Sunday morning on the way to the tomb, she's drying her eyes with the other ladies, and who knows what they're thinking. And then she doesn't cry when she sees the empty tomb. What does she do? She's task-oriented. She runs. Her immediate reaction to the empty tomb is, I've got to go tell Peter and John. She gets them. They come back. Then they leave her. Nobody has any answers. And And then the dam breaks. And she's weeping in despair and sorrow. But that's not how the story ends. Because think about, think about being brought to the brink of complete despair and sorrow and then recognizing actually nothing is as it seemed to be. Actually, all in an instant is made right. Actually, The great loss that you thought you suffered is the greatest victory in the history of all mankind. Actually, the God of all the universe was the one whom you were grieving and he's got everything under his sovereign control. Mary leaves the tomb and gets to be the first, the first of many. I'm sure by now millions, billions maybe. How many people will enter into heaven recognizing and celebrating the risen Savior? How many people? How many people? What, what number are you? Number 4 billion, 800 million, whatever, that recognized Jesus as the Son of God and proclaimed He is risen on an Easter Sunday? How many in the, history, in the last 2,000 years of human history, how many people have come to that conviction and confession? We're talking about number one. First in line. How hopeful must she have been? She literally held the good news that nobody else on planet earth held. And how hopeful is that? See, the goal for this morning, for Easter Sunday, is to so fully embrace the resurrection that it is as real to us as it was real to Mary of Magdala that day that we watch at, walk out this morning with just as much hope, just as much energy, just as much peace and joy in the confidence of what our risen Savior has done for us, what that means for us, that we are justified by his grace, that we are made righteous before the throne of God, that our sins have been forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the rest. That's the confidence that we walk out of here with. But in this hope, we have it as an anchor, Hebrews, 12, tell, Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We have this 
as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What does that mean? That means that we have a hope that goes through the curtain that separates the holy of holies from the rest of the tabernacle, from the rest of the temple mount. The same veil, the curtain that was torn while Jesus was hanging on the cross, torn from top to bottom because God's the one that did the tearing. It torn from top to bottom as Jesus entered in to bring us with him in, into the fullness of the presence of God, the spirit that is now poured out among the saints. We've, we've entered in to the presence of the living Savior. And that hope, we call that an anchor. An anchor where Jesus has gone before us as a forerunner on our behalf. And so whatever we face, whatever confusion, whatever blindness, whatever despair, hope is your anchor. And the hope that matters most is the hope that eternity is sealed because the tomb is empty. There is no trial. There is no suffering. There is no stress in this life that can keep us from eternity being sealed for us. As a son and daughter of the king, if you receive Christ and his salvation, you are sealed and you can have an anchoring hope. So I'm going to ask the team to join us again on stage and we'll sing. But I'm going to ask you three questions to close. Is there anything today keeping you from receiving this Jesus? Is there anything today keeping you from receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it your doubts? Is it your questions? Is it, is it your, your own uh, stubbornness? Whatever it is, let those things fall away and receive the truth of salvation for all peoples today. What is in the way? Number two, is there anything distracting you? Let's say you've received Jesus. What is distracting you from continuing in him? What is distracting you from following him more fully? And number three, What's in the way of hope? What is the despair? What is the shame? What is the pain that's blocking your path to this anchoring hope? As we sing, we're going to celebrate. If you want to answer the first question, come and find me. If you want to answer the second, I encourage you, do real business with the Spirit of God in you today. As we stand and sing in celebration that we have a hope that anchors our soul because the tomb is empty.
Father, as we close this celebration service, may we never forget the reality of what you have done here today, an echo of what you did on that day. That on that day you conquered sin, death, and our greatest enemy. And on this day you remind us of it and you pour out your spirit in fresh grace to us to give us the confidence and the hope to go out and to live as a blessing, as ambassadors in this world in which you have placed us. And as we remember that day 2,000 years ago and remember the blessing for this day, may we always live in anticipation of the other that day, the future that day, when we will all enter into your presence forevermore. Father, may that bring us great hope. Hope to the sons and daughters that you have saved by your blood. And Father, may it give us great energy to love well those who do not yet have that hope those still living with questions and doubts. Father, may you use us to bring to clarity the things that you have said. Father, send us out now under your blessing. In the name of Jesus, our risen Savior, we pray. Amen. Remain standing to receive the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.